0: Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a very special edition of the On The Way podcast. It is the first podcast that it has been just me, no Sue Grimmett or Peter Cat here today. Also the first podcast that's been recorded in person away from Australia. I am currently yeah. sitting uh, on a very comfortable couch in a beautiful Belfast apartment with uh, author, theologian, philosopher, podcaster, parable... Uh, teller Uh, many other words could probably be used but
1: (laughs) yes there's some not suitable for podcasts yeah
0: (laughs) Uh, but Pete Rollins is here Pete thank you so much for letting a stranger into your apartment hey
1: this has been wonderful so far I've been so loving our conversation before we turn we had a a whole podcast before we turned this thing on so I hope we can be as good (laughs) on on air as we were off air oh
0: yeah we've sat here for an hour just talking about a whole bunch of stuff and we might have burned all our good stuff so if the next if this podcast is a bit flat just trust us
1: that the other stuff was amazing wasn't it great yeah it was really good, actually. I did very much enjoy it.
0: Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Well, look, there's a there's a lot of people who will know your work from a whole bunch of different areas. Um, I know that that you've been a pivotal figure in my journey for probably close to a decade now. But people seem to find you in all these different sorts of places when they're they're along the journey of maybe a faith or spiritual life. And um, and I think something you've done amazingly is help people uh, not just have permission to. To doubt things or question things, but actually encourage it as a pivotal part of the process. I, I just wanted to ask before we get into today's conversation: Where do you find that people most often say they've discovered you from?
1: Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> that is very good. I should, I really should pay attention to where people discover me and why they discover <laughs> me, because I could probably be useful information. <laughs> I should pay someone to do this. So this is all anecdotal, um, but. Uh, like we're in their journey. Like, what's mm. what? Yeah, I guess. It, funnily enough, it probably is at the point where something cracks. Yeah, it, often it's a broken relationship or some something in their the confidence of maybe their spirituality or their faith life begins to fall apart, and they start to kind of like wrestle with doubt and unknowing. That's often where I think uh, people discover my work, and that's the yeah. beginning of the journey for, with me.
0: Well, you know. there's some wonderful things you've done. People can get involved with Atheism for Lent, which as we talk, you're currently playing in the 2023 version
1: of oh, that. Oh, yes, very excited about that because yes. I've been running it for like 20, two decades. And um, uh, I so this year, uh, I thought i would just going to completely revamp it. So, you know, just to let people know every day of Lent, you get a reflection. Um, so there's a lot of material, but over the years, I've built it up, built it up. So this year, 100% new stuff, and that took me a long time, but I've fixed wow. it. I'm excited about the new launch.
0: And we were just having a conversation before about you've created something at various stages called the Amiga Project, which oh, yes. um, is sort of like the uh, the alpha program many people might know that brings people into a version of Christianity. This is to bring people out the other side, uh, yes. which is wonderful as well. <laughs> um, so a lot of the, this is sort of a, an area you play around with a lot, which is not so much um, about abandoning Uh, Faith, but kind of going to the next stage. Almost, I've always seen it as like a graduation, almost, your Uh. work. It's like a graduation into from a maybe more childish view of, of things or a younger view of things into a, um, something that fits the mystery of the human experience well, a bit
1: more. I, I like that. And maybe it's not a great, maybe it's a feel. Fail. You feel, <laughs> not graduated. You feel and you find my work. But yes, I'll take graduation. That sounds much better, yeah. Uh,
0: well, look, I've been a, a fan for many years and yeah. it's great to sit here with you now. I think um, today I, I was curious, uh, I was thinking for a few weeks before our, our, our time today about what would be great to talk about. I was throwing a bunch of ideas around because obviously... Um, for people who haven't heard your work much before pete when you speak about desire uh that's helped me helped a lot of people when you speak about the idea of why we desire where desire comes from um what to do when desire gets stuck uh these are really interesting things we'll probably talk a little bit about that um when you you talk about the idea of the lack the human lack we're all carrying that can be fascinating but but where i actually wanted to start today was talking about the idea of home and the reason i wanted to do that is because we are in belfast you've spent uh, the vast majority of the last 15 years living over in LA yeah. um, and where you've come back home, you're back here in, you're from Belfast, aren't I'm you? I'm from
1: Belfast, yeah, so born and bread.
0: Yeah, so you're back home. I actually discovered just before I came on this trip that the Fays, my family, are from Belfast too. The late 1800s, we moved to Australia, wow. the potato famine.
1: Wow. Patrick okay. Fay
0: hopped on a boat over to Australia, but Belfast was our home ground too. All those Seriously? Years ago. That's yes. amazing. Okay, very yeah. good. So yeah. I've come home as well in a yeah. sense today. But it, I guess you only was,
1: discovered this a few weeks ago. Yes, before. yeah. Because oh, no, no, I, no, no. I
0: mentioned to a relative that I was coming to Belfast and they said, you know, that's where we're from, don't you? And I did not know that. So, yeah, learning stuff. I'll have to go look if there's any phase in the phone book and yeah. <laughs> track that yeah, yes. down. But it, I, I wanted to, to talk about it because I actually think it ties into a lot of these ideas of, of um, I don't know, the idea of home is a central the theme to a lot of our lives, you mm-hmm. know, wanting to, to get back to to some idyllic sense of where things are safe and warm and comfortable and we're loved and held. Um, and it can prove often elusive, this idea yes. of home. And so I thought home might be an interesting framing point. To begin with, though, I, th- I thought I might just ask you personally, like what what what's brought you back to Belfast? Why are you back home?
1: Yeah, and it is, it is a great thing. And it, it connects actually um, with... Uh, Kind of Freudian. So, for people who don't know, like I'm interested in psychoanalysis, and it connects with Freudian notions of the ultimate home, which is the womb. You know, our 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 desire, our fantasy, sometimes to return to some sort of primordial space of 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 wholeness. um, That that fantasized space, and that's very important to my work. That. That the sense that we have that fantasy but also the the negative connotations of it which we can come back to but uh but on a very concrete level me coming home yeah um I I never intended to leave Belfast um I was very I was never much of a traveler I was very content where I was living um but I got an opportunity somebody basically said I'll be your patron for three years I want to support your work I want to help it get out there I was an unemployment benefit in Belfast and they were like come out to America I'll help you after a year of saying no I finally was like yes okay I'll do this Um, I moved out to America and I've loved being there Mm. Uh, I lived in Connecticut for a while I lived in LA for a long time Uh, but Belfast is is where my family and where my friends are my um it's where my roots are and i've always had a deep connection to this place so really there was no big intention of oh you know i really want to come home but my rent was up uh in la and i just decided right let's let's take a year back in belfast and it's been really beautiful re reconnecting Mm. with with the city so um nothing very profound about why i came back necessarily but that's why I find myself You're Also cheaper, I think I mentioned yeah, to you. Yes, it's a yes. lot cheaper to live in Belfast than Los Angeles.
0: Well, <laughs> people do call Belfast the LA of the UK, though. I have heard that said. <laughs> <laughs> let's, get, let's
1: try and get that started. Let's try and get that. Yeah, I like that idea. <laughs> uh, well, they did film
0: Game of Thrones here, didn't they? They did, yeah. So lots can, of it. Yeah. We can claim that at least. But yeah. it, it's an interesting idea, I guess, because I, I think a lot of people would hear that story and think, Gosh, growing up somewhere, living somewhere and then being away for 15 years mm. and coming home might feel at times disorienting. You, might, you you see the change that's happened in the people and the places while you've been living elsewhere and you wonder who the new version of you who's now come back fits into all of this. Has, yeah. Have you found that disorienting?
1: No, you know, it feels like I've never left. That's yeah, I think I right. like that as a person. I think I'm very, wherever I'm stuck, I kind of seem to weirdly just get into you know i'm kind of like yeah, that okay. um but uh, and like a dog returns to its vomit i have returned to <laughs> belfast <laughs> well there's um, two
0: metaphors for belfast you can go with the la of the uk or the dog's vomit yes
1: and i think dog's vomit <laughs> is truer you know i, I wonder yes. whether to some extent um home is always created retrospectively like yeah you know you yeah. start somewhere but it only becomes home when you leave so when you leave somewhere You start to get all you know certain nostalgia certain Mm. that only happens because you've left like before you've left it's not even home it's just where you are right you're just in a place but as soon as you have a distance to it you know it's it takes on all of this new special connotation so for me Belfast was never home when I was here it was literally just the little piece of geography that I inhabited But when i moved to america it became home it started to take on a nostalgia it started to take on an an extra dimension um and of course the truth is it can never match that so when i come back it's never going to be as good as the nostalgia the nostalgia is created by the absence by the desire so desire in order for desire to exist there has to be some sort of distance some sort of space so you leave home it becomes something special And then, you know, you return and you're, yeah, so in a way, and this is the Freudian notion of uh, separating from the mother is your mother is just a regular person. And then as the infant separates, as you start to lose that, that person becomes significant in the loss. The very loss infuses the thing with something more than uh, what it had originally.
0: Yeah. And I yeah. think, I think a lot of people will relate to that. I think about, um, I think about, I guess all through my life, I've been known for loving Christmas and oh, yeah. my whole love of Christmas, I think has been some attempt to get back to something yes. to, you know, cause you think about as a kid, Christmas feels like this enchanted, if, if you have a, a happy childhood, which I was fortunate enough to, oh, yeah. it's this enchanted sort of magical time of year and um and every year i've tried to recreate that since then as an adult yes and i reckon every december almost a, it's almost my catchphrase now is some sort of a melancholy that will see set in around mid late december where i go just doesn't really feel like christmas yes yes it's this whole idea and I, I it makes me wonder whether this idea i had of christmas as a six-year-old was even accurate
1: yeah. or if it's all
0: this construction of something that never really existed yes.
1: and or probably what what happened is you know, a child's enjoyment of Christmas is sparked off by seeing the enjoyment that's created in their parents' faces. So the parents pretend that Santa exists, they pretend all of this stuff, and the child gets really excited by the parents' excitement. And interestingly then, the child, what makes Christmas magical for the child isn't Christmas, it's it's all of the desire that they see in their parents' But their ah. parents, their desire for Christmas and enjoyment of Christmas is the desire that they see in their child. So what's happening, and that's why for adults, Christmas often only becomes magical again when they have kids. Because So you even get to a point, and my my niece had this experience where she looked at me once and she said, um, I don't believe in Santa. And I said, why are you whispering? She said, I don't want my parents to know. And I was like, why? And she was like, well, you know, they get so much enjoyment out of my belief and so, like, oh yes, yeah. like you get a point where the kids are pretending to believe for the parents, and the parents are pretending to believe in the magic for the kids, and no one really believes in Christmas, but it's it's the belief in the other person's belief that makes it magical, right? Yeah, so that's yeah. which is weirdly how desire works: that we don't really desire things in themselves; we desire things because other people desire them. That's how our desire functions. It it's drawn out my high that we interpret the other person's desire. Ah, that's yeah. fascinating. And and then Christmas is a real you know, real profound example of that because as we we see it so obviously in parents and children is is it's it's the other's desire for Christmas, which is often a fiction, which generates the magic. Yeah, 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 yeah. I
0: mean, you've you've sort of just destroyed Christmas for people, but that's fine. Oh yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's hardly a Hallmark episode.
1: This yes, one, no. But but I do
0: think about the whole. Even the, the interesting thing about Christmas for me is a lot of people watch those Hallmark Christmas movies where they know the plot, they know mm. how it's going to end. They every film is the same. You know, a banker moves to the countryside and falls in love with um, the baker in the town, and, and they don't get on at first, but then Christmas Eve they fall in love and off we go. Yeah. It's basically that copied and pasted. Yes, and people kind of watch it ironically, but still they're something about the warmth of it yeah i don't know i think this is christmas might almost be the the peak time where this elusive idea of home is firing on all cylinders yes but but it's right because you can turn it
1: you can turn it i saw a meme on instagram it's very funny where someone said i like to watch the hallmark movies in reverse where (laughs) uh, you know someone who's living in a small town gives up their like their first love to go and become a banker in new york (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's brilliant. Oh, that's, that's that great. actually sounds much more fun. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. <laughs> but the Christmas yet kind of turns it around and we become nostalgic. Yeah, yeah
0: and, and I suppose the, the whole idea of the concept of home is deeply tied into nostalgia. Mm. And I'm curious, you know, from from your reading, your background in philosophy and theology, what, what do you think? How does nostalgia operate, as, you know, in the human experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great question. I, I would want to make the argument... That and not me, other people uh, who I can reference, but that there is a certain loss that comes with being human. Yeah. You could almost say, like you know, the question is there is there life after death? You know, people ask, that, is there life after death? Well, from a psychoanalytic point of view, the answer is yes, and and there is evidence of it. It's absolutely certain there is life after death, and we are the evidence of it. That there is a kind of death that has to happen for us to come into life and in psychoanalysis called castration that there's something that marks us from the very beginning a sense of a profound death a profound loss that is part of being a subject Mm. now at a superficial level and in anthropology it's called the incest taboo and the incest taboo is and is found everywhere right the incest taboo is a universal taboo Which basically says you can't stay with your mother, right? You have to you have to enter into the public world, right? You cannot stay at the mother's breast forever, and that's what what that's basically incest taboo. Is that there's a that that human subjectivity begins when we separate from our primary caregiver, and we have to find a substitute enjoyment in the world, a Mm -hmm. symbolic enjoyment in the world, right? That's incest taboo, and in psychoanalysis, that's called castration. So we are marked by a death by a cut by a loss right at the beginning and if and then so that means that we are very susceptible to a fantasy of filling that loss there's a se- there's a sense in which we carry this this sense in which something's missing and that, that creates a nostalgia And it might be sometimes it it might play out like we think about that person we used to go out with, or we think of our childhood, or we think of a golden age in history, or we think of whatever it is sometime in the Mm. past that was things were good, things were perfect, things were right. And if only I could get back to that, it would be wonderful. Um, Make America great again. Yes. Oh absolutely. Absolutely. It has that it it, it's it has a power because it connects with that fundamental dimension of being human, which is a loss. A something a greatness has been lost, a wholeness has been stripped in some sort of way. Uh, and of course then people can sell you whatever product they want in order to fill that lack. So that's where I think the, the power of nostalgia is it's it's part of being human because we are marked. By, by a loss, by a luck, right from the very beginning. Yeah. I think it's David
0: Foster Wallace who says in his famous This is Water graduation speech, you get commencement speech, you gave uh, once, that the one of the core human experiences is having the feeling of having had and lost something infinite. Yes. And, and I, I think that's such a helpful idea. I've heard you say before that, um, that basically we live in a world which essentially is like a vending machine of products promising if you just had this that thing you think you've lost, that you feel within you can be taken away and, and yes. you'll be whole again and complete again. And um, you're, you, one of your great, I think, critiques of religion is whenever it puts itself in the vending machine as well and says, no, what you need is this over yeah. here. Yeah. Um, I think I think it was you who said that what we need to do is take a sledgehammer to the vending machine. That's yes. good religion.
1: That's good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and because the, there's a vending machine working right today. So I was talking to someone the other day, actually, and we're, we're talking about how... Like we're talking about religion and particularly kind of conservative religion and its promises, mm. and we're talking. I was talking to somebody in Northern Ireland here, and, and we're like going like it. That those promises are less and less uh, powerful, right? fewer and fewer people believe so I think somebody called Ryan to their house with a tract about Jesus or whatever sure. and they were just kind of going like does this work and it doesn't work right we can kind of very few people are going to be convinced by those promises of wholeness and completeness and heaven and all of that through this religion Yeah. but they haven't like But hold on a second, those promises are alive and well, but just in different places. Now, you know, it might be in commodity satisfaction, right, buying the right stuff, or it might be in psychedelic enlightenment, or it might be in sexual liberation. Um, uh, There's a whole pile of things that are offered that say, oh, you can have wholeness, completeness, you can get rid of the, the longing in your heart. Uh, if only you purchase the right things if only you try this meditation practice this mindfulness or this x y or z it's like there's people promising a way to get rid of that that yearning that kind of that nostalgic pain um get you back home yes get me back home And and just because one of the promises doesn't work as well there's so many promises today that 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 do in fact people there's have their whole careers in terms of instagram and stuff selling a lifestyle that seemingly will take away your existential suffering right yeah. and that's just religious promises and secular guys you know
0: yeah, yeah yeah well i actually as we're sitting here today in belfast i flew in this morning from london and last night i was at an arsenal versus west ham game English oh, Premier yeah. League. um my uh brother's brother-in-law took me and him along to the to the game and i'm not really a, a soccer fan at all i'm very big into australian rules football so i can kind of i i can't see that from the outside but i could see last night's game from the outside and at the moment, as we're recording, Arsenal are sitting top of the league. I don't think they've won a Premier League for maybe 20 years or something like that. And I was looking at the fans around me and hearing mm. them chant, hearing them, just looking at them hug when a goal was scored. And then I heard one of them look at his friend and say, this might be the year.
1: And there was like tears in <laughs> yeah. his eyes almost.
0: Yeah. And I thought I could be at a, a revival in a tent, you know, yeah. a, a 50, 60 years ago right now. This is what's happening. Here. This is a religious sense that that we might just be about to enter the promised land.
1: Yes, Yes. You know? so, and if, and here's the thing like, if uh, Arsenal win, there will be this incredible, you know, experience for the players. If Arsenal then start winning everything, yes. that pleasure yes. will eventually begin to decrease and then become boredom. And then maybe not consciously, but unconsciously, the fans will want Arsenal to start to lose. Like, yeah. and this is the difference between pleasure and pleasure. Uh, and enjoyment in psychoanalysis is pleasure is when your team wins, when you get something that you like, the Christmas present. But enjoyment is in the not having, in the anticipation, in the waiting, in the obstacles. And while pleasure is nice, enjoyment's even better. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, so if you think of your team winning everything, there's a momentary pleasure, but that pleasure will die. The enjoyment of that guy is probably is precisely because Arsenal hasn't won for yes, so long. Yes, <laughs> it's, yes. you know, it's a, there's, and that's where the kind of the enjoyment is, just like a child waiting for their present at Christmas. He's sitting there waiting for Arsenal to win. And of yeah. course, there will be the pleasure of opening the present and of the team winning. <laughs> but the real enjoyment is in the anticipation and the lead-up. In fact, so much so that it can be a big diner the next day.
0: Oh, I so I actually so my dad and I are diehard Brisbane Lions fans, and I've said to him, he's laughed at me. But I've said, I don't know if I ever want them to win the premiership uh, because because I think yeah. that might be horrific. Yeah. Because then
1: what? <laughs> you will look, will look upon all the worlds you have conquered in despair. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, so there was a famous thing in Australian rules football in the AFL where Geelong in the sort of 2007, 8, 9 years were unbeatable. They just won mm. pretty much every time they played. And a big thing, you probably don't know this, Pete, but in AFL is that each team has a club song. The club song will play as they run out. And then if you win, the team huddles at the end in the change rooms and sings the club song together. It's quite a lovely little tradition in the AFL. And normally, if you've had a big win, it's arousing. You know, the, the players are really excited. They're belting out the club song. And the Geelong players in 2009, they'd won so much that there was footage of them singing the club song and like one of them was jokingly half asleep doing it and you kind of see they got slammed for
1: it but people said you know this is arrogance but they just weren't excited anymore and the opposite is in northern ireland this is a great example i love this is in northern our football team at one stage was so bad that our one of the songs that they would sing our own people would sing was we're not brazil we're northern ireland right that was the chant <laughs> we're not brazil we're northern ireland because the idea is or well, you may confuse us with brazil right <laughs> but we're not brazil we're northern ireland and yeah. you could see that the team we were getting profound enjoyment out of not winning yes. <laughs> so you could actually go like yes. there's a, there is kind of like a way in which you can enjoy not having and weirdly no enjoyment in in having and getting in fact Lacan, the second one, is Lacan, he says anxiety is precisely the affect that arises out of not having any distance from the object of your desire, which is you know kind of the mother other. But so anxiety is precisely the too muchness, the too closeness of of the thing that you want. That when you get everything, it doesn't make you happy. It actually generates. A profound experience of de- disruption yeah. because, because it kind of doesn't work because you're kind of so close to what you think will we'll fix everything. Yes, and yes. Like, it's like a child who you say, okay, you can eat as much chocolate as you want and you can play all the Nerf battles you want and you can have all the Lego you want and you basically just go yes, yes, yes to the child. The child is going to you know, experience this profound affect called anxiety because there's no bounds, there's no limits being set and we actually need the limits in order to have any enjoyment at all.
0: And this is, I think, speaking about Christmas earlier, I think people often feel that they need to be enjoying Christmas more than they actually are. And oh, so yeah. there's almost a relief when the back-to-work comes along. Yes. Because there's there's no expectation that you're going to enjoy your Monday morning alarm for your week of work. Yeah. But there's this expectation of, I'm not enjoying Christmas enough. And, you know, I yeah. I remember this actually, speaking of the AFL, the Brisbane Lions made the week before the grand final this year, the prelim finals in, in 2022. And I went along to the game and I was so anxious beforehand thinking, am I ready to properly enjoy the Lions being in a grand final? Am I going to get the most out of this? And, you know, all those yeah. questions to the point that when they lost that final and didn't make the grand final, I was weirdly relieved. Yes. I yes. don't have to face this now, yeah, you know? Yeah. So this it's a, it's a fascinating thing, isn't it? This whole yeah. sense that um, the thing we think we want, actually, if we get it, often it leaves us feeling emptier.
1: Absolutely. I think that would be a good sketch, you know, is to have like, some sports commentators that at the very point whenever their team wins, yes. them suddenly having this existential crisis <laughs> and going like, has I dedicated my life to that? Is that yes. it? Like, yes. is that it? Yeah. Because <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. that's kind of like when you when you get the thing, it's like, oh... It's it. you realize like the Freudian idea is fulfill your dreams so that you realize your dreams do not fulfill you so that you realize the abject terror of your dreams is actually mm. it's fine to try to fulfill your dreams but don't think that that's going to be a good thing it's like when you fulfill your dreams then that's the beginning of your journey that's when you realize oh that was a complete failure and then yes. it, through that failure potentially you can then start to discover something truly a a better way to live. (laughs) But sometimes you actually have to almost encounter the success of failure before you can find the, well, the failure that's within success before you find the success that's within failure.
0: I think I've heard you say before that the difference between depression and melancholy, which probably Uh, ties in here. Can you speak a little bit about that?
1: Oh yeah. So in in some respects you can think of depression as the unhappiness that arises from not getting what you want. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas melancholy, uh, in in a technical sense, is in some ways connected to the unhappiness of of getting what you want, the unhappiness of being too close to what you want. So they're both disasters, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, Schopenhauer once said that we live in a pendulum swing between be pain and boredom right so you're either in pain because you don't have what you want or boredom because you have it right um yes. and you know for chopin like that's it so you've got this pendulum and in a way that's between depression and melancholy either you're suffering because you desire something you don't have and you're like oh if only if only i could have that car and then you get it and you drive it and you're like then it's like oh it's the kind of the superficiality that comes from that experience. And if that's the human condition, that's terrifying. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you know, if that, so the question is, how do, is there a way to have meaning? Um, or are we just caught between these two extremes of depression and melancholy? Mm. And the, the crazy thing is we live in a society where even the winners lose. So I, I live for a while. I mentioned earlier when I w- first went to America, it was because of a, a family here, very close friends of mine now, dear, dear friends. Um, and they they opened up the way for me to go to America, but I briefly lived in one of the wealthiest places in America. Uh, I was lent a house for three years in this place. And I hung around with some of the wealthiest people in the world. Um, and these are the people who won. And so they they've won, so they're getting like, you know showers that are lovely and their their houses are the right temperature cars that don't break down lots of great things yeah. but i'm going like but there's lots of melancholy and there's lots of there's lots of prescription drugs there's lots of on there's lots of like um just a lack of vitality Going like if that's what if even the winners lose the losers lose doubly so if you're if you don't have that you can't pay your rent and you're so you're losing doubly but even if you win you don't win. Like, that's mm. not a game that I want to play. <laughs> you know, if, if losing is really bad, but even winning is rubbish. It's like, why, I want, why do I want to play that game at all? Yes. I don't want to play that game.
0: Yeah, so in your own sort of personal journey then, I mean, you, I guess, have probably been fortunate enough to achieve some dreams. You've had books published. You've um, run very successful festivals and events. You've, you've been able to sort of live out a lot of these dreams. Have you often found at the end of a, a festival or at the end of a publication of a book that that melancholy has hit?
1: You know, I'm there's certain there's always areas in our lives where we fall for where we're kind of I think we're always led by our nose, by yeah. desire. Desire leads us by the nose and that's why we often do things that we don't want. We enjoyment always finds a way. That's what I would say is enjoyment always finds a way. Um, even if we uh, hate social media for example Wait, do you really hate it or are you getting some sort of enjoyment out of it right some sort of enjoyment in mm. going back and watching things you don't like right so there's we're led by our desire why am I saying that oh yeah um, is that there's different areas of our lives where we fall foul of this notion that there's something that will fulfill us something that will work that's not for me in the area of my work thankfully of my books or the retreats or festivals so probably in my romantic life that's where it's been sometimes where i think oh somebody will will satisfy me some relationship will be the one i think in as when i was younger that's where these problems arose they didn't arise in my work I think I always understood that I enjoyed the writing process more than the actual publication I just don't care about you know Um, so those areas thankfully means that I don't feel that in my work but in my romantic life when I was younger I think I was I was looking for the one as they say I was I was looking for an individual who would you know fill like and I would never have said that you wouldn't have been dumb enough to actually say that but 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 in the way I acted, I think um, I was looking for that.
0: Yeah, well, and I think that is the that's in the air that we breathe in this culture. Yes. You know, speaking of going home, we were talking before we started recording. I mentioned uh, the union analyst James Hollis, who's written a book called The Eden Project about yeah. twenty or so years ago, which essentially says that every human is trying to get home to return to Eden that we've been kicked out of. And in our culture, the predominant way that we do this, and you can see this, turn on the radio and listen to you know, eight of the first 10 songs will in some way yep. be about the Eden project going home through love. Yep. Every film has, you know, pretty much some sort of a love narrative through it. Uh, and so more than anything else, this is seen as the gateway back, even though it continually breaks down and doesn't work. And, you know, for most people, um, they've got more stories of it not working than working. Yes. And yeah, I think yeah. Esther Perel, the, the great um, psychologist these days, she, she says that the best marriages we have today are better than we've ever had before but it's probably 10 to 15% of marriages at most that get there. Okay. Um, the majority I think she says something along the lines of we now expect one person to do what a whole village used to do uh, for us. And so this is the the tricky thing yeah. isn't it that you know you buy this narrative that, that that's the gateway back home. Yes. And then it disappoints you again and again and again or it's it, even if it goes well it's yes. it's not up to the task of reconnecting you to the, yes. the you know the 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 sacred.
1: And this is this gets us into a really interesting um Area that in philosophy called the sublime, and if if you want to level, we'll see yeah. if you want to go this direction. I'll jump say a few things. Jump yeah, jump in. Bin. Yeah, yeah, we've got a few hours. Lock the doors. Um, <laughs> We're yeah, sitting here
0: uh, with a lovely view Belfast. I can see the Titanic Museum. Yeah, uh, I think and the horror
1: and Harlan the wolf you know us, where the Titanic was built. Yes. Samson and Goliath, the two oh. big um, the cranes yes. used to be the biggest cranes in the world. I think. There we go. Um, yeah, and it is a rainy day out in Belfast, oh. so I'm happy to stay in your
0: warm apartment as yes. long as you can, Pete. So good, take good. it away. Oh, go yeah. into the
1: sublime. So. Well, here's the interesting thing is, um, well, maybe I'll mention Jean-Paul Sartre briefly, right? He wrote this very interesting essay called Existentialism is a Humanism. And in that, he famously said that, and he was kind of quoting Dostoevsky, or character in Dostoevsky's novel, uh, who said, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. Um, Now, the character didn't say quite that, but... Uh, Sartre writes it like that and what Sartre says he says that's the beginning of existentialism existentialism is the idea that if there is no God then we there is no objective right or wrong there's we have to create meaning that's kind of and so Sartre writes his famous essay exploring that idea Um, and funnily enough he says and even if you believe in God you have to assume that because he says say you believe in God and you believe God speaks to you and tells you things you still have to decide whether that's really God or whether that's just voices in your head or it's a test. So there's no way you can ever kind of abdicate your responsibility, right? You always have to take responsibility for what you do. Even if, say, even if you think God's speaking to you, you still have to decide whether you think that's really God or not. So Sartre says, you know, we have to take responsibility. We have to act. Uh, And then Lacan Kind of adds to this, he says. Well, and he says it in his typical kind of flair. He says, "Well, kind of the opposite. If God doesn't exist, nothing is permissible." And what Lacan is is touching on is he says, "Well, actually, what you discover is that when people don't have rules and don't have like kind of a a sense of kind of some sort of kind of right or wrong, what they do is they they get so anxious that they start to." Set their own limits and their own rules, and they become even more uh, tied down. So, for example, in LA, where you basically can you know do whatever you want, sleep with whoever you want, go out, have relationships, you actually find that more and more people are lonely, and more fewer and fewer mm. people seem to be able to have sexual and emotional relationships. Now, but it's there's no there's no limits to that now. You can do whatever you want, and yet weirdly people start putting more and more limits on themselves and what they can and can't say to a different person and how to engage and suddenly you find you're caught up in all of these things right um and Lacan's can's talking about how in, in a way um if to use an example if you go back to feudalism in a feudal era you couldn't decide what job you would have. You couldn't decide who you would marry. You couldn't decide. You couldn't think that you'll ever become a lord. If you're a peasant, you're stuck, right? Yeah, yeah. So in that environment, which is terrible, terrible environment, but also you're not surrounded constantly by being told that you can do anything you, you and you can be anything you want to be. Just do it, right? You you don't have that message, so you don't have the anxiety of that. You just kind of go along and do things. We live in a world where we're told constantly You can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want to be. If you consume this product, you take this drug, you do this course, you can have it. And so we're surrounded by people who seem to be uncastrated. We're surrounded by people who seem to have all of this enjoyment. And yet we seem to be missing it. And it becomes more and more oppressive, so much so that we start to feel jealousies and hatred of the other. Like if you're in a society where you're all castrated, where none of you are that happy except for the Lord who lives, you know, five miles down the road, there's a certain solidarity. But when everybody around you seems to be having all this fun and sex and happiness that you're not getting, you start to hate everybody. You start to feel anxious. You start to, you know, we live in the age of anxiety. We start to have all of these anxiety-related issues and and hatred of the other. Um, And then what happens is, interestingly, uh, there's certain temptations, as I say, to put more and more constraints on yourself or to find, to go back to a constraint, to go into a kind of a reactionary political movement or something. But Mm -hmm. even on a very superficial level, I know some people who find it so impossible to date in somewhere like L.A. that they go back to a traditional church. And they don't go back to the traditional church because they believe any of it but because there's a lot of constraints about dating and all of this but weirdly the the constraints actually enable the dating to happen just like travel laws actually enable travel right all of the regulations actually allow for travel so all of the going to hillsong for example is you know going to hillsong has all of these kind of like you know kind of more conservative prohibitions actually makes it easier to date yeah. Than than whatever. So, uh, why was I saying all of that? I'm not sure. Well, we were talking about the sublime.
0: That's where we got. <laughs> oh into yes, was oh, yes. fine. Oh yeah.
1: So okay, <laughs> this is. Thank you. Um, the 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 thing that's interesting is whether this fan. Oh, so the more we're surrounded by people who are. Kind of seem to be happy and whole All these Instagram influencers or whatever Seem to have mm. the amazing life right The more we're surrounded by all these people who seem to be enjoying And we don't seem to be able to enjoy it At the same level This say, creates anxieties We, um, The the sublime Is kind of like Oh yeah it's a, we, we fantasize that there's a home that we cannot get to There's always a fantasy of yes. a home we cannot get to yeah. For me The truth is that fantasy is created by the impossibility it's there is no home there is like the very idea that there is some wholeness and completeness that we seem to keep missing is itself the fantasy we have to overcome right that's that's the fantasy right it's not that we keep missing it but eventually maybe someone does have the right answer it's like no that entire frame is the sublime is created by its failure, basically. is By the very failure to get something generates the fantasy of the very thing that you cannot get. And that keeps you tied into it. That's why whenever you're poor, you're more susceptible to prosperity teaching, right? You're more susceptible to this dream of of how money can fix you precisely through the failure. Actually, the more money you have, like if you just have a fair amount of money, you're less susceptible to the lie that having money will fix you, because you're not, uh, you know, you have enough. Right. It's, Mm. it's the failure that generates this weird idea that having money could somehow be existentially transformative.
0: Yeah. 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 I hear you. It reminded me just then of a conversation I had with a friend a few years ago. And I, at that stage was really wanting to be in a relationship and he was married with a kid. So he sort of had what I wanted. He was in a, a job he wasn't enjoying and I was doing a radio show that I was loving. So yeah. I had all this career joy and success and that's what he wanted. And so we're both sitting there at coffee and having this conversation and I realize an hour in that we both are living the life that the other thinks if I just had that, yes. everything would be okay. And it's a, it was a fascinating thing. I've heard you say before, that can be a helpful way to almost evangelize each other into our lives and go, what you have is a profound gift. Trust yeah. me, take it from me. But it is an interesting idea that i don't know you no matter what it is that you think will make you whole and complete once you get it that focus is just going to shift to something else and yes. shift to the next thing shift yes. to the next thing
1: again and again because because what we we don't really realize is that what we desire is desire itself yeah it's not we we think we desire the end of desire so we have fantasies like oh i would like to retire go to the beach <laughs> not do anything just sip drinks and look at the ocean right um and again, this is one of those sad fantasies that we're sad if we don't get it, but if we do get it, we're melancholic, right? If you, th- that's why a lot of people die very soon into retirement because to be honest, their life is boring. They finally realize, well, this is it. I've spent my entire life wanting to get to the point where I don't have to pay any bills. I don't have to do anything. I'm going like, this is worse than, than, than working, right? Yeah. Um, that what makes life meaningful is sacrifice. There's a direct connotation to how much we sacrifice and how much we can enjoy. Um, now, it's a complicated thing and we can, but to, to start, we, we can look at how economy is where you give something, you get something in exchange, right? So we live in a world where most of our activity is an economy, we give and we receive, right? But if everything was an economy, there would be no meaning. Social life has to have gift. So even on a very superficial level in Ireland, when you go to a pub, you buy everybody a round, right? Your mates, mm. you'll go in, you'll oh, buy us all a round. And then someone will buy a round back and eventually you'll get your drinks back. But it's a gift. The idea of a round is I'm buying a set of drinks with no return. Yes. And if someone sat down and went, I'm buying a round, but I'm just taking a note so that I make sure in the next <laughs> month or so, I get all those drinks back, right? Yeah. That wouldn't work. The point is, same with bringing a bottle of wine to a dinner party or something like that. No one's taking notes of how much it costs. It has to be a gift, and a gift is a non-economy. It's something that's given without return, which is what a sacrifice is, is an expenditure of energy without return, an expenditure of something that that has no return. Mm. Now, um, if meaning is directly connected to sacrifice, then our fantasies of the sacrifice of sacrifice, where we get to the point where we don't have to work, where we can just sit by the beach, is a is a world without meaning? because actually what we really want is not to get these things, but to struggle and to work yeah. and to wrestle and to journey and that's where the meat of life is. but we kind of like we miss that. we we're it's a trap, you
0: yeah. know yeah, I remember a friend a couple of years ago. The build up to the Christmas holidays, they they kept saying, when I'm just on holidays and off work and I'm able to be home with the family, that's going to be just wonderful. And then a few days into the Christmas holidays, they said, the family's driving me nuts when I can just get back to work. Yes. Everything will be wonderful. And I thought, it's interesting that they couldn't see. I pointed it out and they laughed and they oh, said, yeah. yeah, that's a good point. But that they weren't aware of what was going on, which again was this idea. So it's it's a bit of a weird way for reality to work. I don't know if there is anything behind reality, but if there is, what an unusual reality to create! Yes. Now, do you think that sometimes?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is and this is where metaphysics is interesting philosophy because there's yeah. certain right. So there's certain phys, ph- philosophical theories that talk about um, that everything is in rela- is a relation. So there's a kind of process philosophy is like this, is is there's not really objects. We think of objects, but actually all there is is relationships, kind of like between, kind of things are the kind of like the nodal points with, of between relationships. Now that's all sounds very abstract, but we'll make it clear in a second, (laughs) is that we, we think in the same way when it comes to desire, that I desire objects, I desire things. But actually, What we desire is the other's desire. So when an infant is young, there's a certain point in their development where it's called joint attention by some people is where they start to look at where the parent's looking. So they don't look at the parents. They look at where the parent is looking and they see where the parent's eyes gaze is on and they start to desire the thing that the gaze lands on. So they look at the father who's you know watching television and they start to take an interest in the television right And so what you're realizing here is what the child is desiring is and interested in is the other's desire and then they start to desire what the other desires but actually what's 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 really of interest is the desire itself in fact What we really want is to be desired by the people we desire. That's what we want. I want to be desired by the ones I desire. And again, that means I start to desire what those other people desire, but it's not the object. It's desire as such. And desire is not an object. It's not a thing. In fact, it's a lack because you desire only what you do not have. So Again, when you start to think like this, you go, at first your brain melts, and you go, what? Like, so I'm not desiring objects. I'm desiring the desire of the one I desire. What does that mean? But it's like, yeah, this is the crazy thing, is if you like whiskey or gin or beer, of course there's a biological element about taste, but because we're subjects of language, um, that's all overwritten by the fact that you like whiskey is potentially because there's certain symbolic significance to whiskey and maybe connected to your family maybe connected to adverts maybe connected to whatever it is or being a wine drinker you want to be more sophisticated whatever it is there's there's all of this it's not just that i objectively like this thing is all the things that we like have other people's desires infused into them yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah so when you start to see this you start to see the world very very differently
0: yes yeah. and I, I said to you before we recorded that I think this stuff should be taught in schools because I think this is a big problem that we don't really understand how desire works and and I, I hear this all the time in you know with high school students that they they will fall for someone have this crush that develops for somebody and the the way they'll start talking about this person is if they've finally found the sacred in human form. Mm-hmm. This person, um, above everybody else, is is where the sacred lives in this earth. Yes. And then three months later, they're talking about that same person as if they are now beneath all humans.
1: Oh yes. So yeah, we go yeah. from
0: talking about someone as the answer to all the problems to the the problem itself. And I think yeah. Hollis talks about this in the Eden Project. This idea of it is a bizarre thing how we don't just go from you know, I thought I think you're amazing too. Oh no, you're broken like everybody else. Yeah. Or you go from, I think that person was amazing too. I think that person is more flawed than any other human on the planet. Yes. <laughs> and it's this constant sort of weird jump that we keep making of overestimating and then coming down. And, and yeah. it's a fascinating way it, it functions in us.
1: Yes, absolutely. And this is like, this is, and uh, we talked about René Girard briefly before the podcast, but this is for René Girard why kind of desire is the original sin. And for Girard, desire is kind of original sin, in a very profound way. So, if you take a you know original as meaning first, and yes. sin as in lack, right? An original yeah. lack, an originary lack, a lack that is kind of central to us. Well, desire is lack, right? So, desire is a psychoanalytic term for a type of lack that is subjectively experienced because you desire what you do not have, right? Mm. So. To be human Right from the very earliest stages From a few months old Where Because at at the very beginning You can say that an infant Has demand And demand is Like they want the mother's breast They want food or whatever Yeah, yeah Uh, Very early on Demand Starts to turn into desire And The way Lacan talks about this movement Is that At first The infant uh, Say wants Just sustenance or heat or sleep right this has these demands but also very soon that the infant realizes that this is not always there there's sometimes the breast is there sometimes it doesn't right there's a coming and a going and that this is connected to another right say the mother and that they have desire right and so sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not and the infant Eventually starts to desire not simply the ball or the breast, but the presence of the other. They start to desire the desire they are going. What makes me desirable to the other? How can I evoke the desire of the other? So it's not just I want the milk, but I want the other's love, right? So there's a move from just the milk to the other's love. Um, and this original sense of lack, there's a lack, there's something that I, I want, is for Girard original sin in that what happens really early on is I'm kind of gonna try and remember all of this, but we desire, let's say in four ways. Let me go. Is it I desire to be the object of the other's desire. I desire to sometimes usurp the other. I desire what the other has or I can desire what relationship the that other has with the what they have, so I'll give you an right example. Again. I I can be jealous. I can desire your partner, right? Say you're going out with someone, and I I really fancy them. I'm going like, so I des, so I'm jealous. That's jealousy, or I might not be attracted to your partner, but I want the type of relationship that you have with your partner, sure. right? That's envy. So it's like I'm not, I don't actually want your partner, but I want that type of relationship. So for Gerard, says th- whenever desire starts, it immediately gets caught up in either obsession. I want to be you rivalry I want to overcome you jealousy I want what you have or envy I want the type of relationship you have with what you have (laughs) that is all completely intertwined at the very beginning the very beginning (laughs) with desire like we cannot get away from jealousy envy obsession and rivalry they're built into desire why because desire is intimately interconnected with another it's not private your desire is not your own thing. It's all, That's why whenever you go out with somebody, you start to desire what they desire. You start yes. to, oh, they're into movies of a certain type. Well, you kind of get into that, right? And then eventually you think, well, that's my desire. But no, you start to desire that because of the other person. But it feels like your desire. Your desire always feels like yours, but actually it was gifted to you by somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> so so Gerard says that the way to overcome the original sin of desire is always scapegoating. So when things get really bad, uh, we find an enemy, we find someone who's innocent who we can blame, who we can say, well, they're, they're the reason why all this conflict exists, and we kill them, symbolically or literally, and then briefly, the community becomes a bit calmer again, and we all get on, okay? But ultimately, desire will again get us into conflict until we can find a way to deal with our desire differently
0: yeah you just reminded me there i was sitting at a cafe a few years ago just waiting for a friend and i eavesdropped on the conversations around me and all the tables around me you could have sworn that these these seven people around me all knew the the antichrist in the world because they would say things like oh he didn't do that to you i've told you for years you're better off without him and all these sorts of things and it was really interesting to me that there was no awareness that you know um well, what's more likely that that person's actually been dating or working for or living alongside an incredibly flawed, awful human, exceptionally so, yeah. or that just this is the human condition. Yes. you know what I mean? Yes, and yes. so that's a, I, I just think that's really interesting. But then if there's people listening to this right now and they've got their, their object right now, their desire, they're thinking, well, right now I'm waiting or hoping for or desiring this job, this holiday, this partner, this pay rise, this house, um this stage of life whatever it might be when the kids are a bit older or whatever it might be yeah
1: um
0: what's the answer then yes what what do you do with what do you do with that sense of is it about going oh that won't fulfill me so i've got to let that desire go or what do you do
1: right so the the common two answers to this question which to be honest cohere with two types of religion two types of popular religion is either the people and we've talked about this one but either they promise the answer to your desire right yes. so we've covered that they'll they'll be the ones that will sell you a product that will say well actually if you go on this holiday or you buy this product or you do you do this course you start crossfit whatever it is right yes, that'll fix yes. it um and then there's the other side which is get rid of your desire that will fix it right the answer is to somehow kind of like stop desiring in a in a significant way right mm-hmm. that's also a common kind of thing and The funny thing is these are often held together. So uh, Slavoj Žižek talks very well on this, but that you might have someone who is a cutthroat kind of moneymaker during the week who then goes to their zen retreat at the weekend right who realizes that everything is nothing and everything is flu and then that weekend away lets them go back in and you know fight for that money and for that really nice car and apartment and all of that and weirdly they actually work well together because you have to have the 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 gas release valve you have to have the weekend away as a break to be able to fully enter into the frenetic yeah. material system, so those are the two solutions. That either say you you opt for one, you opt for the other, or weirdly you opt for both. Yeah. Um. There's another way, and the other way is, and this is this is uh, you know what I advocate for is that is to start to enjoy your desire, is to is to find a way to enjoy not having. Now, you don't, uh, that's not even the right way to say it because you already are enjoying not having... To, this is the trick is we, we already are enjoying... I'll, I'll give you an example. I was talking to a friend last year and he was, he's, in a, he's been married 20 years. Uh, relationship was going through a tough time. And one of the things he was talking to me about, he says, I'm very frustrated because... He says, I'm always in the doghouse. He says, my wife... Blames me for everything. Now, in truth, I know this guy very well. And he he, he is deserving of that sometimes. So <laughs> <laughs> and I think he would admit that himself, right? Um, so, uh, but but even for him, he's in the doghouse all the time. He's like, I, you know, I, I, I'm always apologizing. He says, I always feel like I'm apologizing. He's never apologizing. I'm always apologizing. And it's doing my head in and we're not in a good place. But as we talked, and I know him quite well, I was like, here, you know, the thing about you is this. You love Winning people over Right In his work And also in his romantic life He loves The idea of pursuing And winning over And I said like And I know your partner And she loves being Won over Right Mm -hmm. She loves being wooed and won over Right That's both of your desires And What if She's putting you In the doghouse Not because she thinks You're bad Or you're wrong But But in a way Because She wants To experience Being won over And you winning her over And you love that. Like, you love being in the dog race because you love to try to win it over. Like, what's happening in your relationship is that you're both, your desire is finding a way. So when I said earlier, your desi- you know enjoyment finds a way, it's like your enjoyment is finding a way. Now, it's a destructive way. It's a way that you're not able to enjoy your enjoyment, right? It's a suffering enjoyment. It's a passion. But your enjoyment's finding a way. And when we talked about it, immediately, he felt better he's like oh yeah because for him nothing had to change in their relationship right it was not about desiring differently or whatever it's like all he had to do is enjoy his enjoyment is to go oh right so immediately he was able to go back and realize that they they were finding an unhealthy way to play out their enjoyment but as soon as he realized that it became a healthy way of playing out enjoyment. Nothing changed in their relationship and yet everything changed. Yeah, right? Yes. So that's that's the the argument for me is that your enjoyment always finds a way. Even if you're if you always find yourself going out with bad people, um, there's something in you, an unhealthy part, but there's some enjoyment, something you're getting out of that. Something is now if it happened once, that's a mistake. Right? It's like it's almost like if you think there's a criminal outside late at night because you hear something, right, that's yeah. fine. But if you think that every night, there's the, the criminal isn't outside, they're in you, right? Yeah. It's like just the child, the monster isn't under the bed, it's inside you. If you always think there's an intruder, well, the intruder is inside you. The intruder is maybe your father or whatever. It'll, it'll connect to some dimension of your intersubjectivity. In the same way, if you go out with one bad person right that's a mistake right don't read too much into it sometimes a cigar is just a cigar but but if that's something that you keep doing there's something about your enjoyment in that but you probably haven't been able to acknowledge and embrace and countersign so for me the challenge is not to get rid of your desire not to get rid of the suffering of existence sacrifice but to be able to directly countersign it to be able to enjoy it to be able to flow with it it's a lot of work to do yes yeah so should we still hope to get the things that we desire (laughs) well that's where pleasure comes in which is like like and i it's funny that i use this example because i'm not into sports at all (laughs) but actually sports might be the one the few places in our society that this actually plays out well which is um one of my favorite comedians who you might know um do you know david mitchell Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, Yeah, so, so good, yeah. Uh, He has a great sketch where... He's a, he's a football commentator and he's talking about uh, you know this week this this match between Arsenal and Manchester United and then next week this game and then it just gets more and more and he goes all of these teams and all of these games the, the Titans that are Liverpool are gonna fight the you know the Giants who are you know whatever and he keeps going and building himself I said the football never ends it never ends it just continues no one will ever win the football and it's absolutely brilliant but they're like. For me, that's why I don't like sports because no one ever wins. Like no one ever wins the football; it goes on forever, right? <laughs> like I don't understand. Like you yes. should just finish the game, just figure out who wins football, <laughs> and then we start something else. But I go, oh yeah,
0: <laughs> knock down the stadiums. <laughs> yes, that's the
1: it. thing. It's done. They it's won been... <laughs> the football. That's it. That's it. We're good. We're good. We've finished it. But God, it never ends, and that's brilliant because. The pleasure, as I say, every now and again your team wins and that's, that's the pleasure moments are great, but the enjoyment is being with your team, the history of your team, the history of the players, the history of the managers, the, the even the economic stuff and the, the history of the, the, the stadium itself and the enjoyment of, of all of the, the, the struggle and the sacrifice and that's where the energy is. So in the same way, it's like, yes, I want to struggle to write a book, but it's lovely whenever you actually finish it. Like, do I think that that's finishing it is where all the where all the happiness is and the satisfaction? No, not at all. It was in the writing of it. But hey, whenever you're baking the cake, it's great when you see it finished and eat it. But but get the enjoyment from the baking of the cake. Yeah. And there's and and this is not just this. This kind of sounds like self help and all of that. But actually, it's very political. Like we live in a culture. Where we're constantly suffering because we're caught up in the idea that the next thing is going to fix us—the next phone, the next car—then, like we're constantly led by the nose by this thing. And one of the, one of the, one of the defenses of capitalism, which many of us know, is that it works. All right. So one of the basic apologies apologetic arguments for capitalism is, mm. whether you like it or not, whether you think it's moral or immoral, well, it kind of fits with our nature. It fits with nature itself. Um, the, and, and it kind of works, right? Um, and then the argument against it is that it doesn't work. So you've got people on one side saying, listen, it works better than the other systems, it works, forget like, and the, we just gotta admit it. And then you've got people who say, well, it doesn't work, it creates recessions, depressions, alienation, it doesn't work. But there is an argument to say that, no, capitalism works because it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work or not work. It, it works because it doesn't work. There's something about, by never giving you the thing, it keeps generating the fantasy of home. It keeps generating the fantasy of yeah, something wonderful sure, that you can't sure. get. So it's precisely the failure. That's why gamblers aren't addicted to winning, they're addicted to losing, right? It's the loss that generates the fantasy of how great the win could be, right? It's, it's, um, right. I, in my, I had psychoanalysis uh, many years ago, and, and I was in a relationship uh, that was probably not the healthiest. And um, I said to the analyst at one stage, I said, Well, you know, it, I'm just addicted to the highs. Now, I was doing Lacanian the analysis. They don't say anything very, very. So, this is one of the very few moments where they said anything. But the analyst said, uh, I, So I said, I'm addicted to the highs. And they said, Or the lows. And it was just right at that right moment through all of this analysis that that the, the or the lose, those three words hit me. And it's like, oh, I'm not addicted to the highs. I'm addicted to the, the problems in the relationship because those are what generate the fantasy that this could be incredible, right? Yeah, Actually, yeah. if we were together, it would be a mundane, boring relationship. Now, it might still be good and whatever, but I had... The lows were the very thing that sustained the fantasy of something incredible. And I wasn't willing to give up the fantasy of something incredible. So I was addicted to the crises without knowing it, not consciously, but yes. unconsciously. So in the same way, the political dimension of this is that we're often caught up in jobs and a whole system that that kind of like, tells us the truth, which is that we're getting something from it not working, but, but then hiding that fact from us still always giving us a shiny object that at the very end you'll get this if we can directly if we can directly embrace the struggle itself that doesn't just change us at a very superficial personal level that if enough people do it can change our economic and political uh culture and, re- and religious systems you mm. can create an entirely new mode of being yeah um and this yeah. is what I mean by church by the way. not church as an it's actually existing form, but, but as a, a collective that that meets on a regular basis that lives out this form of freedom from the pursuit of happiness, this freedom from the frenetic pursuit of wholeness and completeness, this embrace of dissatisfaction that that we live out in collectively. You yes. know?
0: But but it's it's essential, isn't it, as you're saying that there, that it doesn't come with the abandonment of desire. Because it's almost yeah. like that that leads to you think about people who don't have desire and they're people who have depression, you know? They yeah. don't have any sense of desire for anything.
1: That's right. Depression, like in, in, in many ways, the kind of extreme form of depression, as you said it perfectly, is the inability to desire. Yeah. It's like you kind of get up, but you don't really want to. You eat, but you don't care. Like you'll just eat frozen food, you know? You'll, you, you'll walk somewhere because you have to get there, but not because you're enjoying the walk. Like des- your desire is almost completely stopped up. And you mentioned fixation earlier, uh, maybe it was before we were talking um, live, but fixation is, is where your desire does exist, but it's in one place. Mm-hmm. And so again, you can't desire anywhere else. So yeah, for me, the religions of nihilism and the religions of hedonism, so religions of nihilism or get rid of your desire, religions of hedonism or fulfill your desire are both uh, problems. You have to have a Kierkegaardian religion, the religion of the absurd, which is a type of enjoying not getting what you want uh, the they, they, uh, that there is something about and well, this is really important right there's something about the nature of, of reality that is asymmetrical, antagonistic there's something about being human, but it's not just about being human, even rocks have it at a quantum level there's there's asymmetry, right but at the very core of everything, there is a type of yearning a type of dissatisfaction, a type of, and here, and this is the difference between me and, I would say Jung, but you can come back to me because you're a Jungian. So <laughs> but but um, definitely, at least a lot of spirituality, this is where I'm different from a lot of spirituality, is, is that, for me, yearning isn't the kind of, the prerequisite. It It is at the very core of everything. Mm. So, for me, the very, what I'm interested in Christianity is the idea that that in radical Christianity even God is divided you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right, this notion that we might think we're divided but God is whole and complete, right, we might think that and the secular version of this is you know, I'm unhappy now but there maybe if I had married that person I would be happy or there's a type of world where I could be satisfied, right, I'm not satisfied now but some future world or some alternative world I could be, right, In the, the religious term is I'm not whole and complete but but God is the radical message for me of, of of Christianity is, no, God is incomplete as well. God is, is broken, is, is self-divided, which means that actually that, to be, to be um, able to embrace your contradiction, that's salvation. not to overcome it, not to overcome struggle and sacrifice and asymmetry, and, but to somehow say amen and yes to it is the salvatory act.
0: Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So so don't do away with this fantasy of home, but also at the same time, be aware of the fact that it doesn't really exist. We're never actually going to get to yeah. that idyllic home, but we're going to keep finding fun ways to desire it and enjoy the not getting there.
1: Yes, and not, <laughs> and there's and Lacan had this beautiful... He used uh, it's an old Greek um, uh, story about two artists, and they get together, and they were the two greatest artists of their day, and they both were kind of jealous of each other and there was a competition who is the greatest artist who who can paint the most realistic painting so the first artist and i forget their names but the first artist uh reveals pulls back the curtain on the day uh, and reveals these grapes that he's drawn, and the grapes are so lifelike that the birds of the air literally come down and start pecking at the piece of art. It's like mm-hmm. that's very impressive. And so they look to the next artist and go, "Okay, pull back the curtain and reveal your piece of art." And the artist just smiles and says, "The curtain is the art." And what the people realize is they're, they're so realistic that he's painted the curtains, but yes, uh, but right. we we think there's something behind it, right? And Lacan says, "Well, that's what reality is like." Is that the that There's a certain sense about that, a certain dimension of the real world that gets us to start to fantasize that there's something behind it, (laughs) but but actually, that is that is a fantasy that is created by the world. Um, So it's almost like saying if if you say to somebody, words cannot describe how much I love you, the failure to describe it is what generates the thing. That you cannot describe so the failure of language to describe love is the very thing that describes it it's the very so it's not that language <laughs> fails. language is successful <laughs> in its failure by generating the very thing that it feels to generate right
0: yeah that's awesome yeah. you know I, I heard you say recently you're talking about victor frankel and how oh, he yeah. worked with people who um who had depression what he would do to sort of get desire functioning in their lives again mm. sort of understanding that it's not about getting the desire back going so then it could be fulfilled yep. it's about the fact that the desire is almost the fuel of the human journey
1: trying to fan it again yeah like yeah, yeah. like fixations is a great example of that where the the where desire stopped up it's like it's kind of trying to get desire to move to move from thing to thing again so to not to not stop um, so and with frankl when he would ask people why have you not killed yourself yeah. Which is a very strong thing to ask. He would ask that because by the time most people get to the analysis, most neurotics get to the analysis. It's often, it's often they don't even want to be there. Someone else has said to them, "You've got to go." Right. So there's there's enough desire going. They don't even desire enough themselves, but they still desire the others' desire enough to get out of bed, go to the analyst, and then Frankel will you know ask like, "Why why do you not kill yourself?" And because there's always, the reason for that question is there's always some desire. There's always some reason. Now, desire might be almost snuffed out. It might be very minimal, but it's always there. Start with that. So with my friend, in the example I used earlier, I'm not trying to, I, I'm already assuming that desire is at work, right? So with him, I was always, I'm already assuming enjoyment is, is at work and desire is at work. My only thing is, right, let's reveal where it's at. Where is it? In the same way, Frankel is going. Even when someone has virtually no desire, and I remember going through depression, and for a prolonged period of time, just didn't desire anything, didn't care about anything, and it took so long before I remember I had an everyday concern. It was like I was worried about paying some bill or something, and I was so excited because I was like, oh, "That's an everyday!" Like I'm actually care about something, <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. but it, 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 I that experience of like. The desire is almost completely gone, but over time, just rediscovering, try to fan it into life. And Mm -hmm. yeah, that's difficult again for us. It can take years in therapy, and I encourage anybody who feels like that in their life to try and find a good analyst. Yes,
0: yeah. It does remind me in a difficult time in my own life, I found myself watching a football game, and I just spontaneously after many difficult months was yelling at an umpiring decision that was made. And I thought, well, hello, (laughs) this is... I'm angry about an umpiring decision again
1: yes oh it's one yeah it's one way of understanding when Freud Freud gave so it's always interesting like what is the cure in analysis and it's a difficult question but one of Freud's answers was to take uh misery and make it into everyday unhappiness but I think that's that's what you were feeling there everyday unhappiness you're going like I can't believe you did that like that's so much better than misery misery is like so whenever I was worried about paying the bill I was like oh that's everyday unhappiness and I was so happy about having everyday unhappiness because Because everyday unhappiness was so much better than misery. (laughs) Totally. All right. So I suppose the takeaway from all of this is we're never quite going to get
0: back to that home we dream of. But we should always keep finding a way to fan the desire for it. And enjoy the not having it.
1: Enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's it. And I would say like almost like the way we does. It's one of the things that's interesting for us all, I think, is to try to figure out how do we desire. Like, yes. How Our desire is always at work. Right, so you you don't have to. If you almost you have to be a detective to yourself, you have to be Columbo to yourself. Sure. You have to go right. What am I desiring? What what's going on in my life? How does my desire function? And you don't have to change that. You almost have to countersign it. Like we're all we're often passengers in the car of our desire, and what we want to yeah, do is yes, maybe yes. try and get into the driver's seat. We want to, and that, that's what Nietzsche was very good on this, where he talked about basically saying um, amen or yes to our fate, right? So to say yes to your fate is almost to go. Like again, to come back to a simple example with my friend is he didn't have to change how he was desiring with his partner, he just needed to countersign it. He needed to kind of make it his own. He, it was already his own, but he had to kind of like kind of say yes and amen To what he was already doing And the funny thing is When you do that The negative dimension of your desire Often dissipates quite easily It can sometimes take a while But sometimes it can dissipate very quickly Yes Yeah
0: Yeah, and I suppose that is the the good news of all of this, in a sense, is yeah. that actually, you know, I, I know a comment you've said many times is that you're not here to tell people or to make people depressed. You're here to tell them they already are depressed <laughs> yes. and they just don't know. And yes. It's one of your, your famous lines. Yep. But that is the the good news is that actually the the way out of this bind is not through satisfying it, but mm-hmm. stopping trying to satisfy it. Yes. Which is, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This is dialectics where, you know, it's a, a way of thought that, and you find it and um in so many areas of life because i think it's just so profoundly true which is like the way into the light is through the dark the way to life is through death the way to kind of find personal satisfaction is through actually forgetting about personal satisfaction and giving yourself over to somebody else like these like it's always the opposite right is that if you want to be happy forget about being happy oh like it's kind of we we understand this but often we've we live as if we don't know it right um but that's that that's this profound dialectic of oh yeah there's weirdly if you want to overcome your depression you have to somehow admit to it and embrace it right if you want to if you want to go into if you want to overcome the darkness you know you have to step into it like this counterintuitive dialectic that is good news so the good news is bad news Right. The, whenever someone gives you the good news that you can be happy and whole and complete, that's going to bring anxieties and depression and uh, new restrictions. If you someone gives you the bad news and says like you can't be happy, whole and complete, give that up. But here, let's let's give that up and let's work hard on something together. And then you realize, oh, I do feel happy whole and complete in the very giving up of it yet the moment that you start to grasp it then you lose it <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? oh, isn't yeah. that the annoying thing right because yeah. <laughs> then
0: you give it up and then the joy comes in and you go oh i've got joy i'll actually hold on to this and then you've ruined it and again you
1: ruined it again yeah oh what yeah. a nightmare
0: <laughs> what a nightmare so what should i do then if the brisbane lions do in the
1: premiership Next uh, season, Pete. Jill, just hope that they don't win again. That's <laughs> the thing you you know, once or twice is good. Just hope they don't do a run. It happened I remember when I was at school, it happened to Manchester I think it was Manchester United They went through this phase where they won everything and I could see it in the fans. They just didn't like it. Yeah. Like they yes, they kinda of were yes. consciously going, This is great but they were not enjoying it as much as the people who were losing all the time. They were the ones who were enjoying it. Yes. So oh, yeah. when be you careful gonna, what you wish for. When are you going <laughs> to write a book on this stuff? Uh, you
0: need to write a book on love, desire. This is so
1: good. Yeah, okay. Well, I know. Yeah, I, I would like to write that. So, yeah. One day. Well, so what yeah. is
0: what is on your agenda at the moment? What's coming up for you?
1: Ooh, yeah, I am. so I'm writing a new book, um, which has been after many years of not writing. Uh, so I'm going to hopefully... Finish that up in the next month or two, um, and that's a that's a book about like imp- this notion of contradiction, uh, mm. the contradiction that's within us and it's within reality and how we kind of can embrace contradiction so that's that's a book uh, that i'm working on and got atheism for lent coming up which i'm very excited about um and then yeah just uh, enjoying being home so yeah cool yeah and best way
0: for people to stay up to date with you is social media is it the patreon
1: social media first you know yeah. be patreon if you like what you see but there's loads of free stuff you can hundreds of hours of free stuff on youtube and on uh podcasts so plenty of stuff out there
0: Well, Pete, thank you for letting a stranger into your apartment for this conversation. This has been really fun. Yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, we'll have to get you to Brisbane sometime and and do it in person again.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) Bye-bye.